so that we can be together on this day. Um, I'm going to tell you a story to get started today. The, the title of the message is Right Relationship, God's Covenant with Moses. I'll tell you a story from the fall of 1998. I was a freshman in college, and I was not living in a right relationship with God. I would have told people that I was a Christian. I knew the Bible fairly well. I had prayed a prayer to ask Jesus into my heart as a child. I'd gone to church my whole life, but I was not living in a right relationship with God. In October of that year, I would go on my first date with a young lady named Kirsten Boltice. We had some things in common, both of us being students at a college in Iowa, but both of us being from West Central Minnesota. But the one thing that we didn't have in common was that Kirsten was living in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus, and I was not living in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Kirsten would see that, and so after our first date, she wisely concluded that it would not be right for her to be in a relationship with me. That led me to quickly uh, start dating another girl, and when Christmas was coming that fall, I knew I needed to get this girl a gift. So I got her a giant stuffed Christmas bear. Well, during the extended Christmas break at home, I decided that that was not the right relationship for me. So upon returning to college, I went to the girl's dorm up to this young lady's room and told her so. She responded with silence for a while and then went over to a closet to take out the giant stuffed Christmas bear that I had given her and told me she wouldn't be needing that anymore. So the dilemma for me was now I am a guy in a girl's dorm and I have a giant stuffed Christmas bear in January. And I was going to have to figure out how am I going to take a giant stuffed Christmas bear walk my way through the girls' dorm, walk across campus into the boys' dorm, and once I arrive, what am I going to do with said giant stuffed Christmas bear? Thankfully, we wore baggy clothes in the 90s, and so I was able to take this bear, stuff it in my winter jacket, and zip the thing up. I had feet hanging out the bottom and a little hat coming out the top. I don't know if that was better than just carrying it or not. Probably not. And I'm trying to think, how, how am I going to pull this off? Where, like, I've got this symbol of a broken relationship, uh, and what am I going to do with it when I get over there? Thankfully, as I was walking out of the girls' dorm, I remembered that just behind the dorm was the dumpster for the cafeteria. And so I deposited uh, this symbol of the broken relationship right into that and didn't have to walk all the way across campus and into the boys' dorm. Well, it wouldn't be long after that, that by His grace, God would save me. I would face the reality of the depth of my sin and believe the good news that Jesus died in my place for my sin and that I could live in a right relationship with God, not because I earned it, but because of what Christ had done for me. And at that moment, I was justified. I was declared righteous before God. I was acceptable to Him. I was no longer in slavery to sin. I was rescued and I was adopted by God, living now in right relationship with Him. Kirsten saw that take place and concluded that now we could live in a right relationship with one another. And two years later, on May 19, 2001, we stood in front of family and friends at a church where Kirsten and I entered into the covenant of marriage. I gave her a symbol of that covenant relationship. It was not a giant stuffed bear. 
was a wedding ring. Well, in our Advent series, we've been preparing for Christmas by examining the major Old Testament covenants in order. And we've been able to see how God desires a relationship with his people. We started in Genesis 1 to 3, God's covenant with Adam. God creates and rules over creation, making male and female in his image. And we saw how God has a special relationship, that, that the relationship that man is to have with creation is one of dominion. That the relationship that is to be the covenant relationship between male and female is that of marriage. And that the covenant relationship between God and his people will be based on his people subjecting themselves to him or being obedient to him. Well, we also saw that Adam and Eve broke that covenant. They disobeyed. They rebelled against God and were cast out of the garden. So we moved ahead to Genesis 6 through 9, where we saw God's covenant with Noah. Things had gotten so bad that God determined to to wipe out, kind of like start over with creation, save Noah and his family and those animals that were on the ark, promising never again to flood, destroy the earth with a flood. But even after that, the second start wasn't enough. And so God's people rebelled. Noah himself did. Noah's son did. And then the, the people build the Tower of Babel, and God comes and scatters them once again, the relationship broken. Last week, we moved later in Genesis to chapter 12, and then we also looked mostly at chapter 15, looked a little bit at 17 and 22. We saw how God chose one man, Abraham, to bless him, to make from him a great nation, making, giving him an offspring and a land, and that through him, God's promise was he would bless all nations. By the time you get to the end of Genesis and into Exodus, they're a family of 70, but they're living in Egypt. And as Exodus opens, the people multiply, but they're enslaved by the Egyptians. So, we're going to look today at the book of Exodus, especially chapters 19 through 24. But here's what happens in Exodus before that, just to kind of get us up to speed. God's people are preserved and rescued by God. And they're now large in number. So God was in the process of fulfilling his promise to make from Abraham, one man, a great nation. But they're not yet living in the land that God had promised to them. And as God's people prepare to go and live in God's land, they need to know how they're supposed to rightly live under God's rule. If they're going to be God's people, if they're going to be a holy nation that's a blessing to the other nations, they're going to have to live differently from the other nations. How are they supposed to do that? God will be clear with them as we get now into Exodus 19 through 24. Big question is, can they? Can they live in a right relationship with God and others? Maybe a good question for us then too is, can we? And how? So we're going to cover uh, really kind of 19 through 24. Not going to look at all of it. We're going to read a few verses now, focusing on chapters 19 and 20. And then we're going to see, as we have with these other Old Testament covenants, how this really drives us to see our need for Jesus. So if you're able to, go ahead and stand as we prepare to read the very Word of God. Exodus chapter 19. And we'll read verses 1 through 6 after I pray. Father, I thank you that we can be gathered together. Uh, My voice and brain are a little worn out from Sunday school a little bit ago, so I pray that you'd provide me uh, with 
a sharp mind and most of all a soft heart that I might humbly and accurately proclaim uh, what your word says. I pray that you would be at work by your spirit in all of us, that we might be people whose minds are attentive, whose ears are ready to hear, whose hearts are ready to receive, and whose lives are ready to be molded by your word for your glory. Please do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 6 for now. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Amen. You can be seated. You can go ahead and and look in your uh, bulletin. There's a sermon notes page that you might find helpful there. Uh, One quick correction on that. I put the wrong uh, reference in it. When we get down to the New Testament, it's not Matthew chapter 27 we'll look at, but Matthew chapter 22. So just a quick correction on that. We're going to look at Israel's right relationship with God and others. So we've kind of set up where they are. The first thing we get in chapter 19 is when and where. This is about seven weeks, so less than two months after God's people have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're not far from where they started because it's only been a few weeks, and they're encamped around the foot of Mount Sinai, which, by the way, is the spot where God had told Moses, back in chapter 3, verse 12, that, that he would deliver his people and they would serve him on this mountain. Okay? So that's the mountain, that's the when and where. And then we've got the why in verses 4 to 8. God had been faithful in keeping his covenant. He had rescued the people, and I love verse 4. Did you hear verse 4? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God's people were in a helpless situation. And if God had not shown his power and brought them to himself and rescued them, they never would have had any hope, right? So, so that's what we see in verse 4. And then there's a now therefore in verse 5. Because remember, the context, the the issue is they are God's people and God has a plan for them to live in his land under his rule, but they're not in the land yet and they don't really know yet what it is that God, how it is that God intends them to live. So verse 5 said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, so their end of the covenant is keeping it by obeying what God says. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If God's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham that through this nation he would bless all the other nations, 
they're going to have to be different from all the other nations. A holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a, a people that have a, a right kind of relationship with God when not everyone does. Then what we see, if you would continue on in, oh, by the way, uh, look at verse 8 really quick. Uh, verse 8, <laughs> all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, they're a confident people. They haven't even heard everything yet, but they say, oh yeah, we, we, we got this. And then, in verses 9 to 25, we really see kind of this distinction, which we see all throughout Scripture, between a holy God and a sinful people. So there's, there's smoke, and there's, there's certain people that have certain limits. The people can't progress any further than the foot of the mountain. But Moses can go up and, and be in God's presence as he takes the message from God. So Moses acting in many ways as a mediator. Let's just read verses 16 to 20 there in chapter 19. It says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. Now, I just want you to get this setting. And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Remember, we saw the Lord coming in fire uh, in the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 as well, right? Still in verse 18 here, "...the smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly." And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So there's this meeting that's taking place as God's people trembling around the foot of the mountain. There's all sorts of noise and smoke as Moses goes up to meet with the holy God of the covenant. God is going to speak to them. How are they to live in a right relationship with one another as God's covenant people and especially with Him? Well, the how basically comes in Exodus chapters 20 through 23. Okay, So, quick, quick overview, 20 to 23 really lays out the how. 19 is the setting, 20 to 23 is the how. We know chapter 21 through 17 as the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue called the Ten Words at times. Now, I did do a sermon. I looked back and I just found this this week. I did a sermon on the Ten Commandments almost exactly four years ago, December 3rd, 2017. So if you want like a full sermon on the Ten Commandments, that's not what this is. You can go back and listen to that one. But I do want to point out a couple of things as we try to understand God's covenant with his people through Moses. In chapter 20, we get the how. We get the terms of the covenant. And the thing we can't miss, that is probably often missed, maybe, maybe you memorized the Ten Commandments when you were a kid. Right now, uh, Mike Van Vorst is taking our middle school students through uh, a catechism, which is right now teaching them the Ten Commandments. And then the questions that are going to come in the weeks following are great questions and answers for them to be wrestling through. But as we look at the Ten Commandments, we can't start on verse 3, which is where a lot of people start. If we want to look at the Ten Commandments correctly in context, we need to start with verse 1 that says, And God spoke all these words, this is Exodus chapter 20, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The basis for the Ten Commandments is who God is. I am the Lord your God. He shares his covenant name again with them. I am your God. I am the Lord. And God not only shares who he is, but he shares with them, he reminds them of what he's done. It wasn't even that long ago, less than two months ago, I brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt. Remember how God did that. Those, those ten plagues, they saw expressions of God's power that he used to deliver them, opening up the Red Sea that they might cross it, closing it in on their enemies who were pursuing them. All these miraculous things. God had rescued them, and God reminds them of that prior to sharing the terms of the covenant. If we were to go through the Ten Commandments, we would find that the first four really focus on how they are to live in right relationship with God. How can sinful people live in right relationship with God? We see that in the first four commandments. The next six commandments, how can they live in right relationship with each other? Right? So that's what we see if we would look through in detail at them. I used this when I preached on this four years ago. It's borrowed from a pastor named Colin Smith. The idea of the Ten Commandments being a mirror, a railway, and an x-ray. Okay? A mirror insofar as the Ten Commandments reflect to us the character of God. As we look at the Ten Commandments, we learn something about who God is, what his nature is, what his character is. So it's like a, a mirror reflecting the character of God. They're also a rail, a rail that shows God's people how they're supposed to live. Right? If we're supposed to be your special people, God, living in your special place, how are we supposed to do that? Well, God is going to let them know in the form of the Ten Commandments and what follows. And then also as an x-ray. Because one thing that the law will do, we especially see this by the time we get to the New Testament, is the law revealed to God's people their sinfulness. That, that they didn't keep the law. So it acts as a mirror, a railway, and an x-ray. Now, Continuing to go through the book, if you look at what follows the Ten Commandments after verse 17 in Exodus chapter 20, you then have what are called the judgments, or you could say the application of the law to specific situations. So you've got laws about altars, you've got laws about slaves, laws about restitution, laws about justice, right? So, so all of these things that you see as you walk through the rest of Exodus 20 through 23. And then it ends with a promise. A promise. You can see this in chapter 23, verses 20 and following. You there? It's a promise that God's people living under God's rule will live in God's land, the land of Canaan, as God had promised. And the people currently living there are going to be driven out. And God reminds his people, but don't you make a covenant with them, right? I'm making a covenant with you, but don't you make a covenant with the other people. You're going to start to worship their gods. Don't do that. So, here's the quick outline. Chapter 19, God's people prepared to hear from God. Chapters 20 to 23, they heard from God. This is what they heard, written down by Moses, and about what God said about how do you live in right relationship with him and others. And then chapter 4, the covenant is going to be confirmed. Okay, So they're preparing for the covenant in chapter 19. The covenant's confirmed in chapter 24. Let's just look quickly at chapter 24 before we flip over to the New Testament. 
as chapter 24 begins, God invites a small group of people to come closer, and then Moses goes down to talk to the people. Let's pick it up in chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And here here they go again. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So it's not just a spoken word at that moment, it's a written down word. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So a couple of things I want us to note as we see the covenant being confirmed here. One, there is this thing called the book of the covenant. Did you see that there in verse 7? It says, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it. Earlier it said he wrote these things down. So the book of the covenant is what we kind of just skimmed over in chapter 20 through 23. Those things were written down and that's called the book of the covenant. This is how God's people are to live in a right relationship with God and with one another. There's also a boast of the covenant people here. Do you see a boast of the covenant people? Where do we see that? Verse 3. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right? And then again in verse 7. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So we have a book of the covenant. We have a boast coming from the covenant people. And then we also see blood of the covenant. Sacrifices are made, and Moses takes some of the blood and puts it in basins. Some of the blood gets thrown against the altar. And then in verse 8, we read that he took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Later, we will get a more full description of the sacrificial system that Israel would use, but as yet it's not been laid out by God. But there's already this sense that for sinful people and a holy God to dwell together, a sacrifice must occur. There must be the shedding of blood. Death, the cost and consequence of sin, is going to be required for God to dwell with His people. And if you read the rest of the book of Exodus and into Leviticus, kind of bloody. You notice that as you've read that? I mean, just, just imagine being there. Imagine a, I mean, the, the, the people gathered together around the foot of the mountain. Moses reads to them the book of the covenant, and then he takes some of the blood of the covenant, and he throws it on the people. They're going to be reminded in a pretty physical way <laughs> that their sin, that, that for them as sinful people, for, for them to 
be in the presence or live in a right relationship with the Holy God, it's going to require the cost of blood, death. God's covenant with His people mediated through Moses is a covenant that prepares God's newly rescued people to live in God's land under God's rule. So, what if we went through the rest of the Old Testament? How did Israel do? They were confident here, weren't they? I mean, right at the beginning, they're just fresh out of getting rescued by God. They saw God's power. They were confident. Hey, everything you say, we will obey. We will do. They said it more than once. How did they do? They would fail. Was it because God wasn't clear? Was it because they didn't know, they didn't know what the rules were? No. God was clear. He spoke. He had Moses speak it to them. He had Moses write it down. Later, actually, later in chapter 24, God's going to write it down himself. Right? So it's not that God wasn't clear. It's not that the people didn't want to. It seems like they wanted to. We will. We will. They were motivated to obey God. But God, knowing they would fail, also knew that there would need to be death and the shedding of blood. What about us? I mean, we have God's word more, way more than they had, right? We have God's word. It is clearly laid out for us. As Mark prayed, he was, he was praying, thanking God that we have multiple copies of God's word in our home. We have access to teaching unlike people throughout most of history. Like, we have God's word. We can be taught from God's word. Is that enough? That maybe makes us a little confidence, like, oh, I want to. I'm motivated. I want to obey. And God makes it clear what I am to do. Is that, is that enough for us? It wasn't enough for Israel, and it's not enough for us. So, again, we see the Old Testament pointing us to long for Jesus. If you flipped over to the New Testament, the first, first book in the New Testament is the book of Matthew. Go ahead and, and turn over there. Matthew chapter 5. Well, let, let's start actually in Matthew chapter 4. We have seen throughout the Old Testament, we've seen Adam fail. We've seen Israel fail. And now Jesus comes, and in chapter 4, Jesus will be led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He spends 40 days and 40 nights there hungry. And every time he's tempted, instead of failing like Adam failed, instead of failing like Israel failed, Jesus perfectly obeys. And that's certainly, that's the only temptation spot that, that, that is, is really long and clear and explicit. But we know that Jesus as a human would have been tempted again and again and again in so many different ways as he lived in a human body, right? He's tempted in every way, just like we are. Yet, Scripture says, he was without sin. So, you get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, Adam had failed to obey God and live rightly under his rule. Israel had failed to obey God and live rightly under his rule. But Jesus comes 
And he does not fail to live rightly under God's rule. He lives perfectly obediently. And he is the fulfillment of the law. That's why we sing that in that song, right? Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Here's why it's good news for us. Because we're more like Adam and Israel than we are like Jesus, right? Like Adam, we fail. Like Israel, we fail. And it's not because God hasn't been clear what he expects. We fail to live in a right relationship with God. We sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says in Romans chapter 3. You may go through the letter of the law and say, well, yeah, but I, that commandment, like I'm not, I'm not an adulterer. I haven't murdered someone. But if you keep reading right after Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law in Matthew 5.17, he keeps going in the Sermon on the Mount and you have all these phrases, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, revealing to people who, who think, might think that they have attained righteousness or lived up to God's righteous standard by following the law, Jesus makes it clear, ain't none of you have, right? You have not, you have failed to live up to the righteous standard that God has laid out in the law. So here's what's clear. The law can't save us. I know we went to a couple of these verses last week, but we got to go here again. Flip ahead in your Bible just a little bit to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We looked at a couple of the verses in this chapter last week as we looked at God's covenant with Abraham. But look at uh, this week, look at uh, verse 10. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Who is that? All of us, right? All of us. Cursed because we don't abide by everything written in the book of the law. God makes his will clear and we sin. We miss the mark. We fall short again and again and again. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, right? No one can be justified or declared righteous by God by the law. Well, what's the answer then? Look at verse 13. This is the two we looked at last week. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What's the good news in Galatians 3, 13 and 14? The bad news is, all of us are cursed because we failed to obey the law. But the good news is, Jesus came to be a curse for us. And this is the great Christmas truth that we're going to memorize this week. Memory verse on the back of the bulletin, Galatians chapter 4. Look over just a little bit further. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, for centuries, for generations, God's people had lived with these shadows, this sacrificial system that was pointing ahead to the greater reality of Jesus. You wonder, well, why did it take so long? Well, verse 4 But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to, here's the purpose, why did Jesus come? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In Exodus, we saw God redeem His people, rescue them from slavery in Egypt, draw them to Himself, make them His own. You will be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And what do we see here in Galatians? Jesus came at just the right time, born of a woman, born under the law, that we, through faith, might receive adoption as sons. This is good news. How does it happen again? And what happens through faith? If you go back to chapter 3, just look at verses 24 to 26. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Okay? So we become adopted sons of God through faith, heirs of the promise through faith. So, so here's where the rubber meets the road, where I just ask you a very frank, blunt question. Are you living in right relationship with God? And don't hear me say, don't hear me say, are you doing all the things you think a Christian should do? Because that's what I was doing for a good chunk of my life. Doing all the things I thought a Christian should do. I'm not asking you, hey, do you go to church? Well, obviously you're here, right? Okay, so check that one off the list. I'm not asking you that. Do you know some of the Bible? Yeah, maybe you can check that one off your list and feel good about it. I'm not asking you that, though. I'm not asking you if you're pretty good morally compared to most other people. I mean, there's bad people. You heard about them in the news. You're not those people. I'm not asking you if you're better than most of those other people. I'm asking you, are you in a right relationship with God? If not, you might be stirred by the Holy Spirit to be wondering, what am I supposed to do about that? Maybe a better question to ask first is, what has God done about that? What has God done about the fact that you cannot on your own live in a right relationship with Him? Well, what God has done is He has sent His Son to become a curse for us. That, that yes, He's laid things out clearly in His Word, but one thing He's laid out clearly in His Word is who His Son is and what His Son has come to do. And that for us to live in right relationship with a holy God as sinful people, it's going to require the shedding of blood. If you are not living in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus, I urge you today to repent and put your faith in Jesus. I'd love to talk to you about that. Let's talk about your relationship with Jesus. Come and find me after the worship service. Many of us are here, though, today because by God's grace, we are living in a right relationship with Jesus. Not because 
Like, we're not a bunch of people. We got together because we now, we've got it all figured out. We have obeyed. No, that's not us. But we are living in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. What does any of this mean for us then? Well, let me just kind of close with this as we prepare for communion. Remember when Jesus summed up the law? This is in Matthew chapter 22. He had been asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, here's the question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These are commands Jesus is giving. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. We, as the people of God in Christ, are to obey these commands. Right? Just because we're not saved by obeying commands doesn't mean there's no commands for us to obey. Oh, there's commands for us to obey. The difference is our motivation. We're not motivated because we think we can or we think that we're going to earn God's acceptance or God's going to accept us by us earning His grace. No, we are people who know that we can only get it by receiving it through faith. And as we are people who have received that through faith, we are people then who are determined not to live like the rest of the world. Those words that were used in Exodus 19, uh, that you would be a holy nation, those are words that Peter then uses and applies them to the church, the people of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we looked at that last week. Right? A kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Right? This is who we are called to be in Christ. That means we stop living like the rest of the world. We are given the Holy Spirit. And so, back in the book of Galatians, in chapter 5, we looked at chapter 3 and chapter 4, but in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's us, right? We're people who now have the Spirit of God living in us. We're not led any longer by the law, but we're led by the Spirit. Not to do any longer what we wanted to do in the flesh. Not living under the burden and curse of the law, but living in the freedom of grace to obey, empowered by the Holy Spirit, motivated by God's grace because of what He's done in saving us, to live the way that God has called us to live. We are now His treasured possession that we might be the light of the world, a city on a hill, the people through whom people from every tongue and tribe and nation will come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so it's pretty fitting, we always do communion on the first Sunday of the month, pretty fitting that we'd be in a passage where we're looking at God's law, we're seeing Moses take blood from an altar and throw it on the people as a physical reminder of the reality that that death needed to take place in order that sinful people could live in a right relationship with a holy God. We do something physical when we take communion, right? 
we, we take the bread and we take the cup, physical elements that remind us of the body and blood of Jesus, reminding us of the cost of our sin endured by our Savior. So we're going to do that here in a moment, but to prepare us for that, we're going to sing a song. And so worship team is going to come up and, and lead us in that as I close us in prayer. God, we, we have sinned and fallen short. We deserve not your blessing, but we deserve a curse. So thank you for sending your son at just the right time to live a perfectly obedient life and to become a curse for us. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place, in my place, as my, our substitute so that guilty lawbreakers like us can be welcomed into the presence of a holy God like you, that we can live in right relationship with you, not because we've done everything perfectly, but because you have done what's necessary, and by your grace we trust in you. We're undeserving, and we're grateful. I pray that you'd use this song to remind us of what Christ has done, and to prepare us to take communion together. In Jesus' name, amen. You can stay.